Jake Zuckerman wrote a great story about hypocrisy for Cleveland.com yesterday and the Plain Dealer today. And it is the first thing we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Laura, you get this one. How badly your statements about the problems with August elections by some Ohio Republican lawmakers aging as they now try to devalue the power of our vote with, you guessed it, a special August election. Well, they're trying to rationalize it, right? Well, this is different than that because (laughs) of this, right? But they want the August election for one reason, and that's to kill the abortion rights amendment, which is aiming to go on the ballot in November. So that means they have to renege on what they said last year when they took away the right to have August elections from local governments. Basically, they said it was a way of gaming the system, and most of the electorate is not engaged in the process. That's what they said when they passed that. And they're right. That's the point. They hope to sneak this through because to to pass it, they basically have to trick people. They're like, hey, please give up your your rights as a voter. We want to make it harder for you as a voter to put anything into our state constitution. So the amendment would need more than 50% of the vote to pass in August, but then future constitutional amendments would need more than 60% to pass. Yeah. Let's stick to the hypocrisy. So let's name them and say what they said. Let's go through them one by one. All right. So Thomas Hall, a Madison Township Republican, he's the one who sponsored the original bill. He's the one talking about the gaming the system. Um, Scott Wiggum, he's from Worcester, also a Republican, introduced his own legislation in 2019 to end that uh, August election. Here's what he said in a recent interview. He said, Democrats are on a, quote, crash course to, quote, decimate the state constitution. And Hmm. I would like to... Yeah, Point. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we, yeah, can we break yeah, that wait, down? Wait, wait. You keep going back to the issue. The, what I want to talk about is the hypocrisy. They <laughs> said very strong statements about why August elections are an abuse of the citizenry. Let's stick to that. Stick to stick to the statements about why August elections are so bad because it, it's one after another. Jerry Serino, one of the Northeast Ohio guys, supported the law. This is terrible. It's expensive. It fools the voters. It sneaks. Who who is the legislator? Says this is a way that school districts sneak tax increases through. Right. And and Frank LaRose said said the same thing. He said, you know, he was for it. Now he's, well, he was a, against August elections. Now he's for August elections. And Jake, you should go and read the story because he has very specific quotes from each person. Um, Reggie Stolfus, Minerva Republican, said, um, why can't entities just wait until November to put the question in front of the general public? <laughs> right? Um, so I talked about Thomas Hall um, you, Derek you, Marin, our, our good friend Derek Marin, who tried to keep, you know take control of the this house, he was on the record. Now he's for for the August election. So yeah, it's a lot of backflips trying to make it different, but it's not. They're trying to sneak this through. Right. It proves they're all a bunch of lying hypocrites. They wanted to stop August elections. They spoke one after another about what a disservice it does to the voter, that it's a sleazy mechanism that elected leaders use to get things passed. And now they're all using that sleazy mechanism, claiming the ends justify the means. We should hold them up for this every time. They had a big sign on their face when they run for office. Hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. This is the ultimate in hypocrisy. Can we go back to Wiggins' statement for a minute where he says that Democrats are trying to take over the Constitution with this. 
I, that to me points out everything that's wrong with the state house, right? Because Democrats have zero power in the state house because of gerrymander districts, but they can't gerrymander a statewide referendum. Everybody's vote counts. It's one vote, whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you live in a city or the country, everybody gets one vote. It should be very simple majority rules. But the goal here is to figure out how to disenfranchise voters who don't agree with them. Well, and sneak it through. They're trying to devalue our vote by sneaking it through with a mechanism that they have all stated is sleazy. Look, if people in Ohio vote for this, they're crazy. They're, they're basically reducing the value of their vote in worshiping these abusive leaders. This is one of the worst things that's been put before Ohio. And I hope there's a lot of discussion about it. And there's a big get out the vote here because this will not be good for the future of Ohio government. It's one of the last checks and balances we have. Right. And I'm just scared about how much money is going to pour into this campaign to fool people. I mean, we all know that all those ads that go out, whether they're in our flyer or on TV, are not 100% truthful. Yeah, well, the the people against it should just use the quotes in Jake's story about right, what the true. meaning is of an August election. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Hey, Layla, why is Cuyahoga County's top civil attorney facing potential legal sanctions in a county jail lawsuit and did he actually have a legitimate point to make in the matter that put him into hot water? Well, this is this is kind of debatable. I, th- I think we're going to debate this. Dave Lambert is accused of friv- frivolously filing a motion that attacks a federal judge just to delay proceedings in a lawsuit that was brought by a county jail inmate who was pepper sprayed by guards. So U.S. District Judge J. Philip Calabrese will hold a hearing today to determine whether Lambert's filing violated civil case procedure if he decides that Lambert filed this motion either to delay the case or out of spite for the judge. Lambert or the county could face penalties, which would include potentially a fine or paying the plaintiff's attorney's fees or forcing Lambert to take legal education classes. Beneath all of this is a lawsuit that was brought by former inmate Deontay James. James's lawsuit says he was diagnosed with mental illness and he was on suicide watch when jail officers pepper sprayed him twice in the face, once while he was hiding under a blanket and another time while several officers held him to the ground. James's attorneys have been fighting with the county over the county's refusal to release videos of incidents when officers used force against other inmates with mental illness or attacked inmates who were in handcuffs or were being restrained during this two-year period in question. And James's attorneys want 60 of these videos to start with, but there are as many as 450 of them. And the attorneys want the videos as evidence that the county had a, quote, custom and policy of using excessive force on inmates. In fact, they have to prove that for the case to go to trial. The county has refused to release the videos without a court order, which isn't really how discovery is supposed to work. Also, surveillance and body camera footage is public record. But James's attorneys say they tried more than 25 times to get these videos over the past 16 months. So the county's been kind of trickling them out to the attorneys and fighting about it every step of the way. So at the end of December, Calabrese ordered them all released and said the county is is wrong to argue that they're not public record. And he threatened to make the county pay thousands in attorney's fees for the time and work that James's attorneys spent fighting for them. Calabrese set this hearing about that matter back in January, but one day before that hearing, Lambert filed a motion seeking for Calabrese to disqualify himself from the case. He accused Calabrese of showing a personal bias and prejudice against the county jail based on his personal knowledge from his time in private practice, because as it turns out, 
Calabrese was one of several attorneys who worked on a lawsuit filed in 2018 that accused the county of running a jail with terrible conditions. Lambert argued that Calabrese had already made up his mind about the situation at the jail, and he pointed to a ruling in the case of Gary Breck that Calabrese made. Gary Breck was the former nurse supervisor who sued the county after he was fired for speaking out against jail conditions. So in the ruling, Calabrese blamed then-county executive Armin Budish for the terrible conditions and inmate deaths, and he said there was plenty of blame to go around. So basically, Lambert is saying Calabrese harbors all this bias against the county in this case. Calabrese sees this motion as a personal attack, so we're going to find out soon uh, what what the judge decides. Yeah, and let's unpack this as two separate issues. There is a debate about the videos. It does seem like the prosecutor's office has been delinquent in fighting the release of information that is needed for this case. It's public record. It's discovery. They should have it. So, So the judge seems correct in saying, hey, stop messing around. On the other hand, it does feel like the judge, based on the fact that he had sued the county for the conditions of the jail, may have a pretty serious conflict of interest. So isn't Dave Lambert in his rights to say, hey, I don't think you should be sitting on this case. Wouldn't you bring that up at the beginning of the case like a year and a half ago? I do agree that he should have raised these claims sooner when the case first began. Instead, he files this motion after the judge rules against the county. And, you know, let's be honest, those videos are public record. Fighting that fact does seem like a delay tactic that cost both parties and the judge time and resources for no reason. So I don't know here. I don't know. I Look, Lambert is a very he respected is. He is. guy. I mean, he's got a long reputation. He's protected the county, probably saved the county millions and millions of dollars with his, his able representation in civil suits. He might have been waiting to see, will I get a fair shake from this judge? Because, you know, going against a judge and saying, I think you should disqualify yourself kind of puts you in hot water for future cases. So you don't, you don't play that card unless you feel you have to. He may have been waiting to see if he got a fair shake before he filed it. I just, the idea that they're going for sanctions seems over the top to me. It's, it's, he's representing the county. He's worried about the judge showing bias, whether you agree with it or not. But, but should his law profession be threatened? Should he be censured for well, doing that? Well, I mean, probably not. It's the opposing, it's the plaintiff's attorneys who are seeking that kind of remedy here. And maybe the judge will say, oh, that's not really, that, that's going a little far. But, you know, you were saying that that he was wait, he maybe he was waiting to see if he got a fair shake before playing this card. But it, is it not getting a fair shake that the judge said, hey, these are public records, you got to release them? I mean, that... Well, That's, he doesn't. He doesn't think so. Why? I mean, why, if, I mean why? if his opinion is, I don't think that's fair that they're making us give an onerous number of videos. Look, you say it's public record, but we all know that the law has changed because of Supreme Court rulings. Your your records requests have to be very specific. You can't just go in and say, "I want four hundred videos." You're not going to get them. You're going to have to say specifically what you want. Discovery rules are different. I don't know quite how they would apply. But but there always is negotiation and discovery. Look, I, I think I think you're right. I think they should provide the videos. I, it seems like that they're resisting too much. But there's a, a legitimate dispute going on here and to turn it into sanctions. Look, this jumped off the page of me. I mean, Dave Lambert being brought up on sanctions. This guy has a sterling reputation. That seems like I agree. I agree. But it it is suspect that he didn't raise the concern when the case first started. Everybody. I mean, he knew that this judge had this 
history of working on cases like this before he was a judge. And I just think, you know, it probably did not behoove him to hold on to that card if he felt like it was a necessary thing to do. In hindsight, I am sure he agrees (laughs) with you. (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Akron preparing for the unrest that could result Monday when a grand jury considers the police killing of Jalen Walker? Is Monday when we find out whether the shooting of Walker was justified or a crime? Lisa. Yeah, there's a little bit to unpack here. So on Monday, a special grand jury in Summit County will convene to consider the police shooting death of 25-year-old Jalen Walker last June in Akron's North Hill neighborhood. This grand jury will determine if charges should be filed against eight Akron police officers who have not been identified and... They were on administrative leave after the shooting, but they are now back on the job in administrative roles. So in preparation, and they've had unrest over Jalen Walker's uh, death before. So the things that they're doing, they're boarding up city hall windows and other downtown buildings. Uh, The Akron Police Department and the Downtown Akron Partnership will have text messages for relaying road closures, curfews, and other it's, you know, events or issues after the grand jury's decision. They're considering a designated demonstration zone across the street from the courthouse. And the city administrators met with local activists, residents, and business owners to inform them of the grand jury process. Because a lot of people don't know how a grand jury works. So Monday will not be the day that we find out whether, you know, they will, you know, pursue charges against these officers because grand juries look at the evidence and decide whether charges should be filed. And they're Figuring it's going to take about a week to present all this evidence to the grand jury. I, I still think the crux of this is going to come down to did he fire the shot or not? The, 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 the police mm-hmm. believed he shot at them. There was some evidence of it, but we've still not had any actual determination from the investigation as to whether that happened, right? That's correct. Yeah, there was a video that showed him pointing something out of the window, but they don't know if it was a gun. But after, you know, when they pulled him over and like shot him within seconds of pulling him over, they did find a gun and a wedding ring in the car. I know he was despondent because the relationship had just broken up, but there was no evidence or we don't know of any evidence whether that gun was the thing that was pointed out the window. I do think his girlfriend had died in a car accident. That's what it was. She died. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's cross our fingers for Akron because this could be a powder keg. And they've really handled this pretty well so far. The mayor has been very proactive in in trying to keep passions from exploding. But let's hope it works. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Most people have heard of the amputations of toes or feet that can result from diabetes. How is a university hospital surgeon pioneering a technique to reduce those amputations? And Laura, this really is out there, kind of a procedure. It is, but it's been very successful so far. So the reason that many diabetes patients end up with amputations is that they develop blockages in the large arteries of their legs, which interrupts blood flow to the legs and feet. So this new technique reroutes blood flow to the legs and feet using healthy veins. Those normally carry deoxygenated blood back to the heart and lungs, and instead they're going to be carrying it to the feet. It's reversing the direction of the blood flow in the veins. And this can save limbs and even lives. There were 18 hospitals nationwide that enrolled patients in the trial. UH is the only site in Ohio. And Dr. Mendy Shizabor 
a president of the University Hospital's Harrington Heart and Vascular Institute, pioneered this entire treatment, which is called limb flow. Yeah, I, I, reversing the flow of your blood so that it's going out in your veins and back in your arteries. That just sounds like crazy science, but it's saving people's limbs. Yeah, so far, 76% of patients are able to keep their leg and their wombs have either completely or partially healed after six months. And this data was in the New England Journal of Medicine in March. This helps, could help hundreds of thousands of people every year. The Amputee Coalition of America estimates more than 500 patients undergo amputation every day. And diabetic patients who have amputations are more likely to die or be permanently disabled for life. So that presents a tremendous burden to their the patients themselves, their families, and society. So think about it. If we could keep hundreds of thousands of people from ending up in wheelchairs, like that's pretty, or or with prosthetic limbs, like that's pretty incredible. Well, and the example of the woman who nicked her toe. Yes, well, getting she was an infection, a toenail. Right, and then could not stop the infection because blood flow was so weak. It's yeah. just, uh, it's good stuff. Check out Jack Gretchen Crowen's story on Cleveland.com. The Surgeon General was in the Cleveland Wednesday, and it wasn't to see Bruce Springsteen or later. Maybe it was. Maybe he used the visit to Cleveland City uh, Hall because he wanted to go see the boss. What was the reason he said well, he was here? invited the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, to Cleveland to discuss what Murthy has called a growing mental health crisis among America's youth. So Bibb took Murthy to meet with a group of high school students for what sounds like it was a pretty candid conversation with the kids about the mental health challenges that they face. Specifically, they talked about the effect of technology and social media on their mental well-being. They talked about gun violence and, and also the effects of the pandemic. Afterward, when Bibb and Murthy were briefing reporters on their meeting with these young people, Murthy said many of the students spoke about the pressures inside and outside of school in a post-pandemic world, especially for those kids who have spent, you know, who spent their first two years of high school entirely on Zoom. Bibb said that there was one student who said she felt as if the world was moving, but she wasn't. I mean, my goodness, that so perfectly sums up that feeling, isn't it? So Murthy said the impact on kids' mental health is real and quantifiable. We saw a 57% increase in the suicide rate among kids and 50% increase in emergency room visits due to mental health during the pandemic. He said the CDC reported recently that one in three girls has considered taking her own life. But he's hopeful that this crisis is solvable, but it'll take time. He says we need to increase the number of mental health providers who are specifically prepared to deal with the problems that young people are facing today. And that goes hand in hand with improving mental health funding and better access to telehealth resources. Bibb said he plans to use federal money from ARPA to help launch school-based and community-based mental health programs. He also said he hopes to build what he has talked about many times, this children's cabinet in his administration to address issues facing young people in Cleveland. So this really did happen because the mayor invited him to come. Sounds like it. I mean, you know, Bib, this is one of those things where, you know, we have all been like, wow, my our minds are blown that Justin Bibb travels a lot and <laughs> meets with people in different cities, meets with uh, mayors and leaders in other places, goes to D.C. But look, he actually has connections, which I'm not sure that we are used to after several terms with a mayor who didn't really care what the outside world felt about Cleveland. 
You know, I, the, probably the most common questions I get from people is, what do I think of Justin Bibb? What do I think of Chris Ronan? And I try to meet with those guys at some kind of regular intervals. And it just happened that this week I, I got to sit down with both of them. It's off-the-record conversations, and it's mostly to maintain communication so that we're getting our stories right and there's not friction. But I got to tell you, I, I still have a lot of optimism. I, I think they're both thinking very radically different from the past and doing things that are innovative and more to come. And, you know, it can all crash and burn. We've seen public officials crash and burn so often that you just take it for granted. But as people ask me about this, I still think the optimism they had when these guys were elected should remain. They're both doing some very cool stuff. I felt like this story made me really feel that that Bibb is pretty engaged with the young people in the city. I mean, he, he said he meets regularly with the Cleveland Schools Student Advisory Committee and that this idea to bring Murthy to town came out of a session with mayors where they were discussing the impact of the pandemic on kids' mental health. And he decided he didn't want to just bring that discussion to Cleveland, but he wanted the kids themselves to be a part of it, to be heard. And that, you know, that came to pass. And that's more than lip service. I'm I'm looking I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing his children's cabinet set into motion. If because if, if done right, that could be the link that we've been missing for years and years in the city's response to so many issues that affect their lives. Well, I talked to him about that in relation to a project that we're considering doing. And I, I think there's some real um, uh, some symbiotic relationships that could be built between that. So, yeah, exciting stuff. I This one blew me away. It's just like, wow, that's pretty cool. Good for him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's another area where the mayor has made a difference. Many people are excited by what's to come with a nonprofit taking the helm of the West Side Market. One group that could be helped in a big way is women who own new or small businesses. Lisa, how so? Well, because the West Side Market has a 30% vacancy rate, which is up from 7% before the pandemic. Um, so lots of opportunities to get a stand at the West Side Market. There was a panel in the Community Speakers Series in Ohio this City this week, and the title was In the Market for Opportunity, Women Entrepreneurs. And the panelists include two women vendors at the West Side Market and the director of the Women's Business Centers of Ohio. And Amanda... I believe I'm saying this right, Amanda Chukra, who is the head of Chukra Meats in Westside Market, and Elena Caruso from the Home Pantry said that they found the market environment and the vendors to be very nurturing, and they were very helpful to new and, and experienced business owners. There's a loyal customer base. There's a built-in networking at the Westside Market, and they're optimistic that the new Cleveland Public Market Corporation nonprofit has potential for further supporting and nurturing new business and, and especially women vendors. 24 of the 70 current vendors at the West Side Market are women. And as they said, you know, there are plenty of stands available. It's a great place to, you know, get your, your business started and get higher visibility. The one of the this came out of one of those outreach sessions that they're doing. They're going around the community and talking about different aspects. That's a new aspect to the West Side Market, right? Uh, well, I'm not sure what you're what the, you mean. This story came out of a panel discussion. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And they're doing what are Laura? What is it? Seven of these? Five of these that they're taking around town? Yeah, they're they're doing seven. And the next one is also about the West Side Market, and it's going to be talking about the West Side Market history. So yeah, this is 
you know, I, I, I don't know if the focus on the West Side Market is new for this speaker series, but it's certainly welcome. Yeah, well, I think the point. whole idea is when they transferred the the running, uh, the operation of it is that welcoming a whole lot more voices and how to do this the right way. And I think a lot of people feel a kinship with the market that this gives a, an opportunity to have a voice. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We're running out of time. Ohioans do love to gamble. Aside from sports betting, how did casinos and racinos do in February, Laura? It sounds like a broken record, but we broke another record. So we're talking about the 11 casinos and racinos. They had $197 million worth of gambling revenue in February. That's up 100 from $178.8 million. That was another record set in February 2022. So everybody, all 11, took in more revenue this year than they did last year in February. So it just keeps going up and up and up. You think there's a limit somewhere. No, it's, and, and you just wonder what it means for gambling problems, but yeah, it's, it's big numbers. And, and with casinos and racinos, the local governments get some money on lo- with sports betting. They do, but they think the sports betting could be helping them because all of them have sports books in them. It was interesting. I went to Bruce Springsteen last night. It's at the arena. There were people who were going into the gamble at the sports book before they went into the show. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I'm going to skip ahead because I want to talk about the Guardians before tomorrow because tomorrow's the hope opener. First, how will the team commemorate the late John Adams who provided the drumbeat for the fans year after year and Lisa who's throwing out the first pitch for the home opener? So Guardians players tomorrow will be wearing a patch on their jersey in memory of drummer John Adams, and uh, it's a really cool-looking patch. I'm wondering if they're going to sell it in the store. I haven't heard anything about it, but it's a round patch, navy blue, and it's got a, it's shaped like a drum, and it's got two crossed drum mallets that he used, and uh, John Adams' initials, so J-A. And they will wear this again on August 24th, which is the 50th anniversary of the first time Adams showed up in the bleachers and started beating his drum. And Adams passed away uh, January 30th, and he began drumming for the Indians in 1973. Throwing out the first pitch, Super Bowl champ and Cleveland Heights native Travis Kelsey, along with his mom Donna. The national anthem will be sung by Cleveland native Narell Simpson, who performed with Rihanna at the Super Bowl halftime show a couple months ago. And they will also unveil their... uh, American League Central Division winning pennant and East Palestine Little Leaguers will form a tunnel for Guardians players introductions for them to go through. There will be a flyover of F-16s from the 112th Fighter Squadron, the Ohio Air National Guard and a pregame party at Gateway Plaza starting at 115. All right. And Mark Bona has done a whole big preview of what you can look forward to in the ballpark. What's different this year? A lot of cashless options. So half of the concession stands at Progressive Field will be cashless, and there will be signs to indicate whether they take cash or not. Most of the in-seat vendors will be cashless as well. Those that will only take credit cards or Apple or Google Pay will be wearing well yellow shirts. Vendors wearing green shirts will still take cash. There's also the Mash Gin Quick pay technology. So you enter a store, you insert a credit card, enter the store, choose an item and then leave. And then it just adds it up for you. Lots of new food from uh, buffalo chicken mac and cheese from Melt Bar and Grilled and uh, ramen noodle bowls, crab rangoon nachos and all kinds of good stuff. Also, uh, 95% 
will, of the home games will have seats of $20 or less. You can wager, although the retail betting location at Progressive Field will not be launched till mid-season, but you can still wager online at the Bets 365 mobile platform. Yeah, Mark Mark did a nice job with the preview. You can read it on cleveland.com. And finally, we did a story on what the cheapest way to get there is. What did Caitlin Durbin report? It's RTA, of course. So you can take the Rapid or the Health line. Um, it's $5 round trip. Uh, fans are going to be asked to be seated at Progressive Field one hour before game time because of all the opening festivities. So, you know, you want to plan your trip accordingly, and you can go online and plan your trip. So what's the weather supposed to be? Do you know? Actually, it's supposed to be sunny and dry, and I think the highs will maybe reach 50. It'll be upper 40s to 50 tomorrow for game day. That's not bad. That's Mm -hmm. not bad at all. So good. And I think we're supposed to have some decent weather for the the whole homestand. The Yankees make their trip early next week. It's the only trip, I think, unless they go meet them in the playoffs, which is sad that they knock that out in the early April. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. Go Guardians. Go Guardians.